0: As you turn with me in your Bible to Galatians 4, be our first text to consider tonight. Though the regular season of celebrating the birth and incarnation of Christ is a few months past, uh, we come tonight uh, to consider the important scriptural teaching on the Son of God who came in the flesh, as we come in our series tonight in the Apostles' Creed. We come confessing that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, and we come tonight to consider how this shapes our understanding of God's purpose in redemption. Well, tonight we want to look at this very pregnant phrase uh, from three very important New Testament texts from Galatians and two passages from Hebrews. Please follow as I begin in Galatians 4, verse 4. Through God. And if you would turn over to the book of Hebrews, I read from chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. "'Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil.'" He is able to help those who are being tempted. And then over in chapter 4, concluding, beginning in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet Without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord our God. Let us pray. Father, we marvel at the wonder of wonders that you sent your Son, the eternal begotten Son of God, into this world to take up human nature to be bound with us, to be identified with us, to bear our burdens, and to carry our shame to the cross. We praise you, Lord Jesus, and we pray for insight and wisdom as we consider these scriptural passages tonight, and we ask, O Lord, for your inspiration and guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. In the popular film Avatar that was popular a few years ago, we... The storyline goes that there's a mission sent from Earth into outer space to one of the inhabitable moons of the planet Saturn, and there the humans establish a colony to mine this planet of its resources. Now the large, tall, blue-skinned creatures, uh, natives of this planet, are resistant to the human invaders, and feel threatened, feel that their way of life is threatened by the humans. Well, in order to build connections with this foreign alien race, human scientists discover a way to transfer the identity and personality of a human into the body of these non-human creatures. Now, one of the main characters of the story is a marine veteran, who is bound to a wheelchair and volunteers for this mission. As this man enters into the world of these creatures, he begins to identify with them, their cares, their concerns, their feelings, being threatened by the human invaders. Well, after a series of mishaps, this man begins to mature and becomes a leader and savior of sorts to lead the people of this planet to lead them in a rescue mission to save them from the greedy and murderous threats of the human race. Other stories popular in film and in book in our culture, such as parents and teenagers trading places, such as in the Freaky Friday films, all speak to this, this fantasy desire of being able to enter into another person's world, to identify with them, or to have someone else come into our world so that we might be understood. This longing to be known, to be understood, to be rescued from our helpless condition runs deep within our culture and in every human heart. This hunger is satisfied in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who entered into our world as a helpless baby, grew to a man to fulfill his father's rescue mission. Most Sundays we confess the Apostles' Creed, which affirms that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, was born of the Virgin Mary. I begin tonight with a couple of clarifications on this doctrine. Contrary to the pagan myths, whether they be the Greeks or otherwise, the Son of God was not conceived by relations between a Zeus-like God and a human maiden. As Pastor Light addressed last week, in response to Mary's question, the angel Gabriel declares in Luke 1.35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Matthew likewise records that Mary was found to be with child, By the Holy Spirit. Joseph's reversal. His reversal, and no longer intending to break his betrothal commitment to Mary. The strong confirmation of his reversal is the fact that he was confident that hers was no ordinary pregnancy. Mary had not betrayed her marital covenant, nor had she been violated. Now, the Apostles' Creed emphasizes that Jesus was born of a virgin. This raises, I think, a a theological question. Was this absolutely necessary? Did he have to be born of a virgin? Well, I've concluded, maybe prematurely, or I'm still considering this doctrine, but not necessarily the case. But in fact, this... The the virgin birth is a pointer to the very miracle that was considered last week, that the Son of God was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, whether the DNA of Jesus, whether it was taken directly out of Mary's body or not, we, we do not know. But somehow, in the wisdom of God, the very genetic material that made up Jesus' human identity was attached by the power of God into the womb of his mother by which he received the nurture so that he might properly develop the way babies develop in the mother's womb. So I am not so sure that, that Mary being a virgin was absolutely, absolutely critical to the redemptive purposes of God as much as it was a sign to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy, and to confirm that the Son of God did not come from merely normal, natural origins. There was something undeniably supernatural at work here, drawing attention to the fact that God was at work to provide redemption for his people. The Roman Catholic Church in many ways, waste a lot of dogmatic energy insisting upon what's called the Immaculate Conception, insisting that Mary's parents were sinless in the act of her own conception, which contributed to her own sinless nature. Now, not wanting to dismiss the importance of Mary, nor to deny that she was a remarkable woman in many ways, I would insist that she indeed was a sinner and in as much need of redemption as you or I. It was not necessary for her to have a sinless human nature in order for the Son of God to be conceived in, inside her own womb. The sinless nature of Christ did not depend upon any sinless nature of his earthly mother Mary who in many ways was a a fine woman. A fine woman of God who demonstrates a very commendable faith. Nevertheless, she shares with us in a helpless, helpless condition under the wrath of God, spared only through the redemption and adoption that comes through Jesus Christ. Well, tonight I want to consider these three passages I've read to look at Jesus as The son, a brother, and a priest. First, we consider Jesus the son of God from Galatians chapter 4. It tells us that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The apostle Paul lays out for us the mission of God through the son to provide redemption so that we might receive adoption. Now, Paul emphasizes the legal aspects of redemption. There is also in this word financial implications. It literally means to set free. In Old Testament Israel, families had to redeem the firstborn son, the firstborn sons belonged to the Lord in the tribe. Of Levi and all other sons had to be redeemed by way of a costly sacrifice. Now in verse seven, it tells us that Jesus came in the flesh to set us free from slavery. The implication here is that we were slaves to the law and under its penalty. You and I, in our natural condition, face eternal punishment. Because of our failure to measure up and fulfill the righteous requirements of God's holy law. In response to that dreadful condition, God sent his son in the flesh to fulfill the law's requirements on our behalf. He was born of woman, born under law, living a perfect life. And offering his life as a perfect sacrifice for sin. Taking on our punishment. And this provision of redemption opens up the way to adoption. It's a bit ironic and remarkable when we consider that our own Savior experienced adoption as well, having been adopted by his earthly father, Joseph. Now we see in the life of Jesus, his growing awareness and identity as the Son of God. We find him at the tender age of 12, At the temple, explaining to his parents who were looking frantically for him that he needed, that he must be in his father's house. The Gospel of Mark in the first chapter, at the very baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, we read that God spoke from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The joy... And the privilege of being the unique son of God was not something that Jesus hoarded to himself, but gladly shared that others might receive adoption as sons. And this privilege is ours to embrace as we believe upon the gospel message that the son of God came to earth born in the flesh to live a perfect life under the law and joyful obedience to the father Lay down his life as a sacrifice for sins, and rose victoriously over the grave. Friends, this is the way of salvation. This is the way in which God has provided redemption for people, punishment, eternal judgment, but also share in the inheritance, the inheritance that God, through the Son, provides all the adopted sons and daughters of the living God. I had the privilege recently of getting a first-hand account of a trip that the Kimball family took. Corey and Stephanie Kimball recently left for the Ukraine to adopt two little girls that they have only recently brought back here home in the United States. Corey and Stephanie had to leave the comforts and the familiarity of home. They were separated from their four children for 57 days in a foreign land. One of the prayer concerns they had, and one of the things that I personally was praying for them on a regular basis, was their own safety and protection, especially because of the, the nature of adoption law and the nature of the requirements in the country of Ukraine. Corey and Stephanie had to carry on their person more than 10000 of American dollars through customs, Through the checkpoints and into the the adoption agency setting where they were able to pay off the fees for these children. They had to go through various legal requirements, they had to provide proof of citizenship, pay various fees, uh, satisfy the needs for, for, for medical exams, and provide medical records. And sign all kinds of documents, go before judges and review boards in order to secure a legal adoption of these two little girls who are the tender ages of two and three. This tiring and very taxing and somewhat risky process, they would both claim was well worth it to communicate and experience the gospel even as they go to claim, to redeem, and to adopt little girls who would be helpless without an advocate, without a family coming to take them as their very own. Our friends at Kimball's have provided us a beautiful picture of the gospel. As we understand that Jesus left the ease and comforts of heaven, sitting at the right hand of his own father, came to endure the trials the taxing demands of life on this earth to experience hassle and pain. And it's this very sacrifice that led to the ultimate sacrifice that helps us realize how desperate you and I were in our own helpless condition. We were no more able to save ourselves than these two little girls who were able to redeem themselves from a life in an orphanage without a family or a home. Jesus entered into the orphanage of this world. He would not leave us stranded and without hope, but wanted to bring us home to the Father as his well-loved sons and daughters. We find parallel themes between Galatians 4 and Hebrews 2, and as we move there, we find a new emphasis on Jesus as our brother. It says in verses 14 through 16 of Hebrews 2 that Jesus shared in our flesh that he might destroy death and deliver us from tyranny. The Son experienced humanity that he might taste death for us and defeat death's power. It's very common among people, both believers and unbelievers to express a very real fear of death. It's oftentimes the unspoken and untouched topic at family gatherings, or even when uh, the obvious has happened at the death of a loved one. We are looking forward to the release of Pastor Roger's forthcoming book, explaining biblically what happens after death. And we hope that this will be a wonderful resource to our people, to believers and non-believers alike. In our text, it tells us that through Jesus Christ, we are set free from the slavery of death. You may recall in the news a few months ago that an American merchant ship was taken hostage by Somali pirates off the east coast of Africa situation where there's a hostage or a kidnapping situation, the family or the business or or government is held hostage by fear of death, the fear of their loved ones or important officials being put to death by the kidnapper. Well, thankfully, in that situation, the crisis was averted by sharpshooting Navy SEALs who were able to rescue the sailors and put to death these pirates in a similar fashion. We who were held hostage by our fear of death have been set free by Jesus who has put death to death by conquering sin and overcoming the grave. Now the Apostles' Creed does not provide us a, a clear explanation of what happened at the cross, what we call the theory of atonement. In fact, for the better part of a millennia, the church fathers believed in what may be called the ransom theory, speculating that when Jesus went to the cross, what he did was pay a ransom to the devil, only to fool the devil by rising again from the dead. It was not till the work of Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century, in his, his work entitled, Why God Man? Why did God become man? Well, the purpose was for Jesus to, sat, to satisfy the wrath of God, to meet the righteous requirements of law, to take on our punishment for sins. And our text alludes to this very truth in verse 17, as it speaks of the priestly work of Christ to provide a propitiation for sins, to satisfy and wipe away all guilt and shame. Hebrews 1 and chapter 2, especially in verse 16, it clarifies that that, that Jesus did not take on the nature of angels. It was not the Father's will that Jesus incarnate in the likeness of of angels. As far as we know, the fallen angels are not redeemed. In fact, we understand from Scripture that a majority of angels don't even need redemption, but rather it's the human race that universally is in need of redemption. And so it's to us who were made a little lower than the angels, have a Savior who was made in our likeness, who took up our very nature, and it was the Father's pleasure for him to save the human race. People who bore his image, to experience the redemption that the angels long to look into and marvel at. I'm struck in verse 17 of Hebrews 2 the casual candor in which the author describes Jesus being made like his brothers. It takes for granted that Jesus is our brother. I think this is a very bold declaration of identifying us in, in such a familiar term of association with Jesus as our brother. So we ask, what is it that our brother is for? Well, years ago, some, some of my parents' friends had a situation where their eldest son's life was threatened by what's called aplastic anemia. This was a, a an autoimmune system failure that the doctors believe was a result of him working for a painting contractor, and the chemical benzene has this tendency to attack and dismantle uh, his immune system. Well, this this young man required a bone marrow transplant to survive. Thankfully, his younger brother was a perfect match. And very willingly offered himself up and went through the somewhat painful and very invasive process of becoming a bone marrow donor for his older brother to save his life. I also heard years ago another story of of a little boy who was found to be a perfect bone marrow transplant match for his sister whose life also was threatened. What was rather startling to the parents is that they did not realize until it was almost the day for their son to go through this procedure. They learned that their son thought that he was giving up his life for his sister. In his confusion, he didn't realize that he would wake up healthy and fine from this procedure. And you can imagine how emotionally overwhelmed these parents must have been to realize their little boy's, willing sacrifice for his own sister. That is what a brother is for. And that is the kind of brother we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus is not a begrudging older brother like the older brother of the prodigal in Luke 15. He is not resentful towards us rebels who do not deserve anything but eternal punishment. He did not hoard the inheritance that was, that was rightfully his in fellowship with the Father. Rather, it was being consumed with the Father's pleasure and his very delight to share in the fellowship with the brothers and the sisters, to endure all the misery and the sorrows of this life, sacrificing himself and declaring it was well Worth it, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way in order to become a merciful and faithful high priest. And it continues with this theme in chapter 4 where it says that Jesus is our high priest sympathizing with us in our weakness and securing our eternal salvation. Hebrews 2, 18 says that Jesus suffered when he was tempted, and therefore he is able to help those of us who are being tempted. There are some who dismiss this, wondering, well, how can God possibly understand my plight, my struggles, and my temptations? I would contend that the opposite is, quite, is, is, is true, that Jesus understands sin and temptation much better than we do. C.S. Lewis writes of this very topic in illustrating from a war analogy how it's only those who stood up and resisted the oncoming powerful German army who truly knew how strong it was. Whereas those who surrendered early knew very little of its strength. Hebrews 4:15 says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. All of us want sympathy. Perhaps we had a very sympathetic mother. We might receive sympathy from a spouse or a good friend, but none of them sympathize with us the way Jesus can sympathize with us. There are those who insist in perhaps their own self-pity that nobody can sympathize with them. Jesus does. Jesus enters our world And when we understand that, it means the death of self-pity. It means the ultimate death of crushing loneliness when we realize we have a Savior who identifies with us. Jesus fulfills what the psalmist writes in Psalm 103. For as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are Dust. Our creator and redeemer and redeemer knows our frame, enters our world, and truly sympathizes with us. Do we really believe that Jesus was tempted in every way? We know that he came in the flesh. And the scriptures insist that he knows our every weakness. He knows every trick of the devil. He understands and knows all the lies of this fallen world. And so James 1 can exhort us that when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But when tempted, we are tempted by our own evil desires. That give birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Friend, when you are tempted, remember that Jesus was truly tempted in every way. Say to yourself, My Savior is with me in my temptation, and trust that He can give you strength and joy to overcome that particular temptation. Paul offers this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. God understands your temptations because Jesus lived and dwelt amongst us and was tempted in every single way. Jesus, who walked on earth, has passed through the heavens and now has opened up for us the very door of salvation. Therefore, we can with confidence draw near the throne of grace to truly find mercy and grace in our time of need. We have a Savior who identifies with us, who knows every aspect of our humanity, who knows all the evil, all the temptation, and yet remained and still remains without sin. Do we really believe that Jesus was without sin? I, I think it's, it's hard for us to comprehend that that Jesus truly was fully human, that he was tempted in every single way, such as we are, and yet remained without sin. We can hardly imagine an existence without sin. It's hard for us to believe that the Son of God would be willing to endure 33 years of life on this earth to live and dwell with sinners. Sinners. Why would he go to all that trouble? What would ma- possibly motivate such an outrageous act? Well, I think talking to my friend Corey Kimball this past week gave me a glimpse of understanding. As he described how when he and Stephanie walked into those orphanages and saw all these children, many of whom were disabled, many whom had MR who ran to them seeking hugs and kisses and affection. Corey and Stephanie's hearts melted. They wanted to adopt all of them and bring them all back home. But of course, legally, they were not permitted to do so. I think that 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 very instinct, that impulse that runs through the human heart is but a glimpse of the heart of God. We heard from Pastor Rogers this morning how Jesus gladly welcomed the children. Do not hinder them. He truly delights in children. He truly delights in brothers and sisters joining him at the table to feast with his father in glory. I sometimes speculate whether Jesus grieved On his last day on earth that he grieved that he would not be permitted to spend more time healing and touching and teaching and ministering to people, knowing that it was his Father's will for him to depart and that it was for the disciples' good that he be removed. That he would send the Holy Spirit, the counselor, to comfort them and lead them into all truth, to empower them to be his hands and feet to incarnate his life and ministry in the power of salvation as they go forth to spread the good word, to communicate this message of hope and redemption, to be the hands and feet of God, to reach the lost sons and daughters that they might receive redemption and adoption, that we might understand that we have a God who has lived and dwelt amongst us, and delights for us to come to him, to rest in him, delight in him, to sing his praises and to live for his glory all the remainder of our days. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Father, we do rejoice. Our hearts are glad that you did not spare your only son, but freely offered him up on our behalf. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you truly did come and live and dwell amongst us that you bore our burdens, that you carried our shame to the cross, that you understand our weaknesses and our temptations and you give us strength to overcome them, to live not for ourselves, but for your glory. And we just pray that you might use us to be your kingdom extending agents to draw in the lost sons and daughters that they might receive adoption and redemption through your precious blood sacrificed for them. We praise you and bless you. Amen.